Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essay speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. We would also like to inform you of an upcoming Sexaholics Anonymous Internet Marathon. Around the World in 24 Hours will take place starting at noon Universal Time on November 29th and will end promptly at noon Universal Time on November the 30th. It's free to register online at www.sim.sexaholicsanonymous.eu. Thank you very much, and without further ado, welcome to The Daily Reprieve. I'm John. Uh, John M. and M doesn't stand for Murphy's World. John from Murphy's World. I've been in recovery since 2010, and uh, progress, not perfection, definitely applies to me because uh, my sobriety date is not eight years ago. But um, Glenn asked me to speak, and I've spoken before uh, in Murfreesboro, and uh, because I have a journey that's you know, very similar to everybody else's. We like to say we all have different flavors of the same. We all eat ice cream. It's different flavors, and my flavor is probably different than yours. But nevertheless, we all eat ice cream. And uh, if there's anything that I can do to uh, provide some uh, hope or of recovery, or just to, by telling my story, uh, I'm very, very pleased to be able to do it. Um, my brain goes all over the place. It's part of my addiction. Uh, bounces all over, and if I wasn't reading from notes, uh, you guys would totally lose track of everything that I'm saying because I wouldn't have three sentences in a row that I would string together that would make much sense. So I'm going to go ahead and read from some notes, um, and uh, you guys can ask me anything you want afterwards, okay? So uh, really, I, I want to speak today, and it's it's not really so much to tell my addiction story, but really to explain the story of my restoration to sanity. You know, our 12 steps, if you read through them carefully, they don't say anything about sobriety in the 12 steps, but step two is restoration to sanity. It took me a while to realize that sobriety was just an absolute foundation. It was not my goal. I got into this program and my goal was sobriety. I did not want to be acting out, and I saw the devastation and the craziness of acting out. And I thought that I could just you know, get sober and everything would be okay, but it wasn't. And it's really a restoration of sanity that, that really is, is where I have my recovery today. I'm going to share my story of addiction. It's really only as a means to explain what our SA program of steps and fellowships has really delivered to me. I make no claims to be cured. My brain is wired too thoroughly from 50-plus years of repeated behaviors. I'm 63 years old now. Uh, to think that I'll ever totally recover. I want to say up front that if anything I express offends you, so be it. Um, look at yourself and your beliefs to understand your reaction, not at me. I only speak for my own truth, and that's all I can speak for is, is for myself. What was my insanity? My insanity was a life of a broken spirit. Uh, I had occasional glimpses of joy of just being alive, but basically I didn't live in the present moment. I lived in the past or in the future. I was locked in a cascade of thoughts. Um, my brain never stopped thinking, and it was regrets of the past, resentments and anger in the present, and anxieties and fears for the future. And that's where I lived. I believed that my internal voice, my internal critic of negative thoughts and destructive behaviors was who I really was. 
that that voice in the back of my head telling me I was a piece of shit and that you know I was going to screw up or I needed to be afraid. That's who I was, and that's all that I was. My my solution to that, from the pain of regrets and the ever-present sense of anxiety, anxiety is just fear, was allowing my brain to manufacture dopamine to disguise the pain with a cascade of thoughts of fantasy of sex, because that's really what it is. We like to say in the Murfreesboro group that we carry our drug with us. It's like a capsule of cocaine, and it's right there in the forehead. You don't have to go get a, go to a bar to get a drink. You don't have to go buy something from your dealer. All you got to do is tap the, the pill inside of their, your, your forehead. How did my insanity take hold? Well, my father was an atheist who was sexually abused, and I was sexually abused, or he was sexually abused as a young teen for a year while living with his uncle in a cabin at the end of the Depression. The life lessons he passed on to his children on 104 were that children had no value in and of themselves, that they should be seen and not heard, that extended families really meant nothing, that friends would fail you, and that lies kept you safe. We were taught at a very early age to lie to cover up our lifestyle. Lying wasn't just occasionally needed, it was really essential for the safety of our core family group. My foundation was a life of independence and responsibility for myself from my earliest memories. I believed that love was conditional on my performance, which needed to be perfect and mature at all times from a very early age. My brothers and I were expected to act as adults from our earliest years. Playing outside was really only allowed outside of the house. Playmates were suspect. We never could have any friends over at the house. We moved around a lot when I was young, five different elementary schools, yet I was thriving as much as I ever did by fifth or sixth grade. I had a small set of friends, and I had the respect for my schoolwork and my paper route, being the captain of the safety patrol at my school in sixth grade. Then we moved to a lower middle class suburb in Detroit, and my social isolation really locked in. I was bullied by a tight clique of juvenile delinquents, as best I can say about them. My original sin was refusing to go into a bank and cash a stolen stamp saving book for the leader of the group, who was known at that local branch for thefts and for stealing kids' safety stamp books. And some of us, I think, are old enough to know what I'm talking about, the little stamp books that we used to have. Also, my first stirrings of emotional crushes on a girl were crash and burn experiences, uh, leading to actually vow to myself that I was never going to give my heart again. I was not going to be hurt by any girl. So I had a foundation of a broken spirit, a joyless life depended on my performance to be accepted, and, and I was feeling pretty much socially isolated. So why did I turn to sex for comfort and not alcohol or drugs? I mean, there's other options out there. I, I turned to sex. Well, it was because it was available. Um, my, family, uh, my family became nudists when I was three years old. Uh, I know now it's because my dad was a pedophile. He, he wanted to see naked kids running around. He didn't act out with anyone outside of my family. My first sexual experience was at eight or nine with myself, my brother, and his friend. And and taking and I don't want to get too explicit here, but uh, we acted out with the friend's younger sister. She was probably in second or third grade. And my memory here is un- unanchored, so I really don't know what year it was. Pornography was readily available in the house. My dad made it available so he could turn around and serially sexually abuse each of my siblings and me as we got to his trigger age. I'm the third, uh, two older brothers and his sister. I got away the easiest. It was only a single encounter of family masturbation. My father trying to masturbate my older brother and I simultaneously while watching a black and white 8mm smoker. Old horn stuff. You could, I can hear the laughs of the older folks. 
on a kitchen towel wall. And oh, by the way, my mom was in the background behind us pretending to wash the dishes. So, I mean, I started out pretty insane. I was so embarrassed that I could not get an erection. This really screwed with my head. Making any physical contact with another person in a sexual setting is a failure for many, many years to come. This is about the time that I had my first solo orgasm, and now I quickly learned that I could escape the needs and wants of the world that I otherwise couldn't satisfy by retreating, retreating to the bathroom with a porn book. Uh, my addictive behavior had a second path as well, emotional crushes and affairs with girls, primarily at work where they were available to talk and flirt with once I started working, and getting affirmation as an attempt to fill that hole in my spiritless soul. These emotional flirtations ended up as a source of two marriages and three affairs over the years. Our sexual addiction takes on many flavors. Uh, mine was porn of ever-increasing depravity, uh, near-daily near masturbation, near-constant emotional crushes and emotional affairs, which kept me safe from becoming too emotionally close or vulnerable to my wife's three marriages and occasional sexual affairs. I became addicted with a mental addiction. It's not a physical addiction. It's not alcohol or, or uh, coke or something. It's mental. Every addiction begins because we as humans, we can't accept living in pain. Addiction is just a way to avoid pain rather than accepting it for what it is and feeling it and then moving through it to possible solutions. Addiction tries to deny the pain by covering it up or dulling it, allowing it to fester and grow beneath the surface requiring ever more addictive coping levels to continue to cover it up until the addiction finally fails and either kill yourself or you finally face the pain. My pain was social isolation, conditional love, perfectionism, living with regrets, self-judgments of past behavior, fear and anxiety of more to come in the future. It's really taken me years to understand my brain and uh, two aspects of my brain that created this mental addiction is the way we learn and the way we generate um, these brain chemicals that make us feel okay. We learn behaviors like we learn anything by repeating them until they create permanent pathways inside our brain. The more things are repeated, the stronger and more permanent those pathways become. So I've lived for 50 years constantly reinforcing that learned behavior of using sex to create those brain chemicals that dull the pain, that I could live through any regrets or fears by just daily self-medication. Self um... I mean, just think about the pathways of learning 50 years of turning to porn and fantasy that formed in my brain. They're not just paths, they're deep ruts in the road now. No wonder that it's so easy to fall into one of these ruts as I travel down the recovery road. The ditches are only 10 feet on either side, and the ruts are diagonals that lead to either side. What were the ramifications of this way of life? First, it's the lost years. Uh, my social isolation, social isolation, Feelings of not being good enough uh, led me to drop out of college. I lived a life in uh, factory work and drugs for a few years. Uh, my life of self-medication led to two failed marriages. I fell into my first two marriages by default. Basically just not saying no to women I met at work who used me for their own purposes in exchange for sex and companionship. There was really no emotional or spiritual connection. It's been very difficult for me to make and hold friends. My perfectionism and failure to be perfect myself impacts my self-esteem and constant judgments of others. I lost a job due to complaints of emotional harassment, and I lost a sure promotion during, due to my reputation as a womanizer. And finally, living in the hell of family sexual abuse and realizing that it follows down through the generations, I agreed to have a vasectomy at the age of 30 when my second wife got tired of taking the pill, so I have no children of my own. 
Another aspect of addiction is that we always begin in pain and end in pain. For me, the beginning of the end was a wife, my third wife, who became suspicious about my lack of emotional connection and asked a church friend who worked at our bank to give her a copy of our check register. She confronted me during a marriage counseling session about tens of thousands of dollars that I had sent to my affair partner over the course of our marriage. And I was so tired of a lifetime of lies that I told her the truth. This wasn't just an emotional affair, it was a physical, sexual affair as well. That was my first bottom. And my life unraveled enough to get me to come to SA. My first SA meeting was March 17th, 2010. Um, I'm speaking to Preston here about a fellow at Murfreesboro that he knows as well that encouraged me to come. And my last meeting will probably be when I can no longer walk through that door or hear a telephone meeting due to age or dementia. I found a sponsor in my first couple of weeks who's a veteran with over 10 years of sobriety. And with my typical type A personality, I committed to finish those steps in less than a year, which on paper I accomplished. Yeah, checklist. Check, check, check. However, I didn't really understand the steps, not in the core of my being, and I white-knuckled and eventually relapsed after three, two years into starting to use porn again. And then I had another affair in the fall of 2014, and I separated from my wife for two months. After years of work now, I have found what works for me. I finally realized that there are really just four things needed to recover from a life of addiction. Simple, but it's not easy. The first is a total and complete willingness to give up the behavior patterns of addiction. Despite the fact that addiction brought a lot of brain chemical feel-good hits and seemed to calm me and relieve my stress, it was killing me and ruining my life. And I have to be completely, absolutely, totally willing to stop all those addictive behaviors. It sounds simple, but it isn't and it wasn't. I always wanted to hang on to that, leave that one phone number in my contact list, you know, leave that one option out there you know don't don't throw away that one little file where i'd written something down you know just hang on to that anchor and i had to become totally absolutely willing to get rid of every single thing that i had the second is that a negative sobriety doesn't get you there i mean like i said before you know i thought sobriety was what i needed that doesn't get you there that's just that very first foundation just stopping the addictive stuff is just a stop gas gap and it won't last. I had to understand that what was down there in my soul was broken and it was needing a fix. And my fix was that addictive behavior. So if that wasn't going to work, I had to find another fix. And this has taken a lot of work and years of figuring out how my low self-esteem, my anger and my fear issues, you know, were really driving my behaviors and how to handle them when they crop up because they crop up. Anybody that's driven in Tennessee traffic knows that resentment can crop up. <laughs> the third is that no one can actually do this all alone. My final breakthrough came when I was completely honest about everything to, to other people and learned to ask for help and stay in connection. And that was really, really, I didn't, I mean, for me, it was the hardest thing. You know, we talk about in Murfreesboro how that phone is a 500-pound gorilla. It's just so darn hard to pick it up and... We make all these commitments in the meeting. We're going to go ahead and make some phone calls. And yet, for me, that asking for help, because I was brought up, you do not ask for help. My family message was, you don't ask for help. You're on your own, buddy. 
you know, you can do it. You're a responsible kid. You, you know, you don't need anybody else's help. That message was so driven into me that it was just so hard for me to think that I could pick up a phone and call somebody and they weren't actually going to be pissed and distracted because I was bothering them. You know, my self, if your self-esteem and my self-esteem was so low that I just felt that no matter who I called, I was going to be bothering. Even though, it, you know, I could be giving them a lifeline by making them a call. They, they might have just absolutely needed that call at that point in time. It didn't matter. It was just so hard for me to do that. And now I have buddies that I call and I call every day. But that was really, I mean, it took me years to get to the point where I could actually pick up that phone and make those phone calls. And the fourth thing is that recovery is a daily walk of, it's a daily way of life. My day starts with recovery. I use recovery to deal with the day, and it ends with recovery. I mean, I really fundamentally had to learn that the steps aren't a one-time through, and I actually do them every single day. I need to actively do the steps as I understand them. Excuse me. Never perfectly, but consistently and daily. I need to be able to get out of my head and be in community through weekly meetings and daily texts and phone calls. These have really made up my foundation for my return to sanity and achieve a level of serenity that I really haven't had since I was a kid. There's two main aspects that have changed for me in the last couple of years that have really allowed me to change my life and see the steps differently. First is just living in reality and in the present moment. I find a real calm spot in my soul by time spent just feeling a part of the earth and its rhythms each morning when I perk our coffee pot after doing my morning calisthenics and then head out to the backyard with my first cup of coffee just to watch the dawn, hear the birds, feel the morning air, and find my place in my body in the real world outside of my head. I mean, I even, in the wintertime, it could be 30 degrees out, I just put my winter coat on and take my cup of coffee out there. But that gets me out of my head and into the real world. My second aspect was understanding how much of my addictive behavior was based on a really poor sense of self-worth. I realized that a lack of appropriate healthy self-esteem was at the core of my addiction. In my early year, teen years, I just defined myself as socially inadequate, as a coward, unworthy of my own respect, much less anyone else's. Now I realize that self, real self-worth comes from within and not as others see me. Real worth, the foundation of sanity, comes from living consciously, just staying in the real world, not avoiding reality, staying out of avoidance and fantasy, being present, with each moment, regardless of whether or not it is enjoyable or safe. Living purposely, having goals in life that are reasonable. Uh, weekly, monthly things that can help me build a sense of competence. Living responsibly, staying responsible for my actions, not re avoiding responsibility for what I do or say, and for following my purpose. Acceptance, which is owning what I have done and what I am currently doing. Acceptance doesn't mean being proud of everything that I've done, but it means I own it. I don't try to excuse it away. I don't try to make excuses. I don't try to say that, well, it was other people. It was, it was the way I was treated when I was a kid. No, I have to accept what I did. It's, it's, it's things that I've done and I own it. Um, and then appropriately asserting my real needs. Because, you know, as a kid, not being seen, not being heard, not having needs, not really being allowed to have feelings. I mean, I can remember crying and being, you know, smacked against the side of the head. Boys don't cry. You're not allowed to cry. What the hell do you think you're doing crying? You know, so not being able to have feelings and just being brought up that feelings weren't okay. I need to be able to assert my real needs and, and be able to talk about my feelings. 
And that's really what will cause resentment. Uh, and I know that now that that's unhealthy, it will cause resentment against myself and others if I fail to assert what I really need. And lastly, it's personal integrity, which is just simply having my actions fit my values and my beliefs. So over the years, I've learned a lot about these steps and the steps that we do. And here's my take on how I do them now. So I do them all the time. I don't just do them once. Step one, powerless and unmanageable. You know, I really had to realize that my sex addiction was burned in the pathways of my brain for 50 years. I am powerless to just not do it. I am absolutely powerless to look at the female body when it's in front of me. Uh, if somebody hits my arousal template, I'm going to see it. I mean, I'm just, that is absolutely powerless. Uh, but beyond that, um, I was never going to learn to stop going into acting out behavior when confronted with pain until I learned to use my tools to stop to identify the pain. And there's going to be more to come. Unmanageable comes when you have suffered enough pain to yourself or to people that you love that you can't stand not learning something else to do. You've experienced your powerlessness from repeated efforts to stop through using your own willpower alone. And that was from not asking for help and just feeling like, I could do this. I got this. Uh, no, I, I don't have this by myself. Step two uh, was really one of the easiest steps. It just follows from recognizing that I am powerless over my brain programming and chemistry. Uh, and that others have used something greater than themselves and outside of their simple willpower to overcome this addiction. Uh, for me, coming to meetings and seeing people with years of sobriety and apparent sanity who said that they did it from using a higher power and steps, that was enough for me. Because step two is just having hope. I mean, that's really all step two is. And the evidence of step two is in front of my eyes. All I needed was humility and an open mind. For me, this step just means I have hope. Step three just means I have help. For some, this may be easy. For me, it was very difficult. Turning my will over to a higher power of my understanding. I mean, I was broken in spirit, thought thought that the crazy cascade of thoughts, the thousands of things that go through my head every day chasing around in my brain, that that's who I was. I grew up in an atheist family. I didn't believe in a creator God or a personal God. For my first pass through the 12 steps, I used the advice of chapter 4 of the big book and made the group my higher power. But that didn't really work because I thought of step 3 as a single check the box, not going to my higher power every time I needed to. Now I've come to some newer understandings. You know, I'm not my organs. My heart, it pumps blood. My kidneys clean my blood. Poisons. My brain is just a stimulus response survival mechanism. I'm not my brain. I'm not my thoughts. Um, I'm not those thoughts any more than I am the blood that's, that's my heart is pumping. I've learned through meditation techniques that I can step back inside of my head and watch those thoughts go by like standing by the side of the street and watching cars go by. I'm not those thoughts any more than the watching pedestrian is the cars. I've learned that I don't have to let those thoughts control me or my actions. That the I am inside of me is always in the present and not in the past or the future. You know, without going into any one single religion, but a major religion uses the term the great I am in a description of God, a God that is not in time. It's always in the present. Perhaps that is that great I am that abides within me. I don't really know for sure, okay? Uh, but it doesn't matter. I just know that I have access to a higher power than the cascade of thoughts in my brain that have always driven my actions and typically end up in the ruts in the road. 
However you find your higher power, I see the third step as being based on finding something outside that stream of thoughts in your head that almost all of us think is what we are and having a full and faithful willingness to rely on that other higher power to help you through the, st the rest of the steps and guide you in your daily life situations. The other aspect of this step that I found hard to understand was the idea of surrender. Required to be willing to turn my will over to my higher power. Surrender, I mean, it's hard to do. Surrender is not a manly thing. I grew up Clint Eastwood and, you know, and all that stuff. John Wayne and, you know, men, real men don't surrender. But surrender is just accepted reality. It's not defeat. It's not negative, nor is it resignation to fate. It is a state of realization that my life situation is, it's what it is, and accepting that it is real and not denying it or blaming it on anyone else. Accepting that I got myself here and accepting that the same thoughts and beliefs and feelings that got me, got myself here are not able to help me change. Surrender doesn't mean I like where I am or what I'm doing. It doesn't prevent me from wanting to change. In fact, it allows me to stop trying to use the same old way by denying and avoiding pain or by escaping it and finally facing it and moving through it. Another mistake that I made the first time through was thinking that this step was a one-time through step. It isn't. An effective step three means being willing in everything that confounds me, in everything that scares me, in everything that I resent or regret, in every emotional disturbance or indecision, every part of the day to rely on my higher power. This isn't just a faith step, it is a never-ending action step. These first three steps are best summarized by Dr. Bob's prescription, you know, line one, trust God. Uh, as our first addictive and crazy thought streams cannot get us out of our addictive and crazy thought streams by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Steps four and five for me are not so much about a catalog of the ways my craziness have hurt me and others, and then the humility of sharing them. Rather, they're about learning to recognize all the crazy ways that I can currently hurt myself or others, and then deal with these in an active daily step six. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, also sounds like a one-time event. And I did that. I thought it was a one-time event. I thought all I had to do was list all this stuff down, you know, tell my sponsor, <laughs> say a prayer, and it was gone. And from then on, I was going to be okay. And that was my step six, and I checked it off. Not anymore. Now I use a daily process. It's whenever I get overwhelmed, resentful, regretful, anxious, or otherwise discombobulated. Um, I have my own new rut in the road. And what I do is it's, it's willing to use this tool. It's a tool that I created for myself. It's called pause. First, with P, I just pause and get present. So if I'm feeling resentful or angry or my wife's pissed me off or I'm feeling really lonely, just I just pause, I stop, I breathe, I center myself in the present moment. I get out of the past, I get out of the future, just be in the present moment. I acknowledge and accept what I'm feeling. Man, was that ever hard. I wasn't allowed to have feelings, you know. See, I'm feeling sad. Do I really feel sad? What is fat? even sad, even feeling? But I allow myself to feel whatever I'm feeling and accept the fact that I am feeling it. And then I unwind it. You, I unwind it and I uncover it. Why in the world do I feel sad? Why do I feel lonely? Why do I feel angry? And I really get down to whatever the, the issue is. And you know, it always comes down to a misbelief about myself. I've learned that my feelings are always based on misbelief. And a misbelief is that I'm unworthy. A misbelief is, is 
how you think about me really impacts me, and I, I feel shitty because I can see in your eyes that you don't like me. I'm just, you know, you know what I'm saying. But but that's the way I was, you know, so codependent that all somebody had to do was put me down, and I would feel lousy. That's a misbelief. I don't. However, anybody feels about me doesn't affect how I feel about myself. But I had to separate that out and realize that's why I'm feeling sad because I'm feeling like whatever you're thinking or whatever's going through your life is is making me sad. But is it really? And get down to that misbelief and then surrender it and just get sanity back. That you know, I'm going to feel the feeling. It's okay. I can surrender this and I can be sane for just this moment, for just this hour. I can live in the real world, in the presence, and not in the regrets or not in the fear. And just go ahead and exchange that for the way I was feeling before. It's just my technique. I mean, it's based on the step work, but uh, it's what I do. It's a step six, and it's, that's my surrender of when I am feeling and my core defects are really driving me to do something because those core defects, just because I've listed them and figured out what they were, doesn't mean that they're gone forever. You know, they will come back. I will have angers and fears and etc. And I have to learn to deal with them. I'm going to skip through 8 and 9. Those really are one-time steps of making the amends, except that I do have to make amends in step 10 whenever I find them. But uh, step 10, 11, and 12 is I spend a lot of time every day. And uh, I do a fearless moral inventory. And when I first started doing my step 10, uh, I didn't really try to define it. I just said, okay, so what did I do today, you know, that, that, that I probably shouldn't have done? And, and I really could never get to anything because I didn't really have, and I, I'm a structured kind of person. You can probably tell, you know, making notes and everything else is who I am. But now I just ask myself a series of questions and harm. Did I do any harm to myself or to anyone else? Theft, did I steal anything? And that for me, I don't steal physical stuff, but emotionally deny somebody their right due. Because if I emotionally denied somebody what they were really right to have, and that's particularly my spouse, then I've really stolen that from her. Uh, sex, did I have anything inappropriate, any kind of behaviors? Uh, falsehood, did I lie about anything? Or did I fail to tell the truth? Because a lie of omission is every bit as bad for me and every bit as dangerous for me as telling a, a lie. Uh, fear, did I allow myself to wallow in any kind of fear? Because for me, that was really my root. You know, shame and fear are, are really fundamental for me. And resentment, did I allow anything to, to go through? But they're not all negative. For me, step 10 is also positive. What acts of service did I do today? What acts of compassion did I have for myself or somebody else? And I, so I can reinforce the good as well as the bad, you know, and just try to give myself credit. Because with a low, if you have a low self-esteem like I do, giving myself credit sometimes is hard to do unless I intentionally do it. And for step 12 or step 11 for me is just really it's a praying through my beliefs and values and desires on a daily basis. Uh, I'm not really going to read through my beliefs, uh, but my desires are really to have a grateful spirit for all that I have. Um, to be compassionate to myself, forgive myself for my past, and accepting myself for who I am, to have a gracious and compassionate spirit towards all those that are important in my life, to be mm -hmm. kind and loving, and to make daily amends when I've wronged anyone, to maintain my integrity, my actions matching my values, and everything I do, to be respectfully assertive to have my needs met, to take action daily to assert my truth and protect my boundaries, and to live in the joy of the present moment and be conscious aware of myself and my actions being responsible for my actions. And to have the peace of mind to be able to pause when troubled 
and to be fearless and thorough in examining my actions and beliefs for any wrong thinking or unhealthy and destructive behavior. So that's my prayers, and I do those every morning. Now, every morning, I also take time to meditate. And this is just really getting in tune with the present moment, focusing on just being present. If I start to think about something other than just being present, I just acknowledge it, turn my focus on the to the now. I try to do it about 15 minutes a day and, and just exercise that muscle of not being my thoughts. And for step 12, I am in a community of people who have coped with life with the same maladaptive coping mechanism that I have and who have realized the insanity of thinking that the same broken thinking system can think ourselves out of our insanity. I know that staying in community helps me stay out of my cascading thoughts and helps cement my sobriety and sanity. Any time I spend in helping others and my fellowship is time that I'm strengthening all the good that is in myself. So am I fixed or cured? No, not even close. But I don't have to live insane either. I don't have to create wreckage in my life or in the lives of those I love. I can find joy in living my life in the present moment. I can't change the past, and I no longer want to. It made me who I am today. I also no longer need to fear the future. For this, I am grateful to Bob and Bill and Roy and everyone who has sponsored a hurting soul and to all of you for being here and listening to me because this meeting would have really sucked if I was the only one in it.